Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to the first fall episode of 2021, the Battleground Wisconsin, post-Labor Day. And we have our full panel with us, which means Claire Zauke, our Healthcare Director, is with us. Claire, good to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. Absolutely. And... Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to have you. Good day, everyone. So I hope everybody had a good uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, Claire, I hope you had a great uh, vacation and Labor Day weekend, but it's it's great to have you back. Was it, was it uh, everything that you had hoped for? Yes, it was heavenly. And uh, it was particularly sweet because I knew that all of my national partners were working in a frenzy about what's going on in Congress that I'm sure we'll talk about. And I I had to put in my auto reply. Yes, I know it's a bad time to be off, but (laughs) I scheduled I'm taking it. (laughs) Late August is actually the best time, but you do raise a good point. We are in a sort of a historic moment for Democrats and for progressives in Congress, and we will talk more about that later in the show. Um, We are going to start the show this week by talking or reflecting a bit on 9-11. It is, this this year is the 20th anniversary. Um, We were recording the show on Wednesday, uh, but as most of you, you may listen to this on 9-11 or or this weekend, and um, it, we just wanted to take stock because uh, not only is it 20 years, but it, the, this moment also coincides with what we've been talking about uh, a bit the last month, and that is the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and that this 20-year war has really uh, also sort of come to an end. Um, and this continues to be a conversation. This week, the Democrats uh, were, were uh, at Fort McCoy talking about the uh, the settlement of Afghan refugees and and, and, and it's calling out the Republicans for their politicizing. Uh, and let's just be honest, straight up demagoguing around uh, anti-immigrant and trying to uh, make it seem as if uh, some of these folks might be terrorists. So there's there's the whole now context, but I gotta just say, like for me that that day was a very, um, very uh, his, uh, historic day that I remember uh, because I I was actually working with Robert at SEIU, and um, I remember that day very well because I remember you know being ready heading to work. It was actually a late starting morning for me, but that those planes crashed into the towers as I was heading to work, and. Uh, I brought my son, Gabe, my first son, who for the first six months spent the day at, spent half the day with me at work and then went to Marquette Medical, which was right across the street from where I worked. And so I remember very well having my son at work and have seen the, the planes go into the towers. And obviously I left work uh, that day, but um, Robert, you worked next to me. I just, you know, I have not talked to you about this. Do you have, what are your recollections of that day? Cause I do know. Um, yeah. Anyways, just Robert, your, your thoughts about that day. Well, I wasn't early in the office either because 
there was going to be a health care hearing, a state legislative hearing in Green Bay. And so I was leaving from my apartment at when the, when the first plane impacted. And before I could leave, the second one did. And, you know, it was shock, totally shocking. And the way it was described on cable was even more shocking, like the Hindenburg or, or other disasters, uh, because, our, well, it was scary and, and shocking, but also the media plays that up uh, deliberately. And But I still thought, okay, the, the, the terrorists aren't attacking Green Bay in a state here, legislative hearing on health care. So surely the hearing's still on. And before I could get ready, the hearing was canceled. And I just remember that um, uh, as shocking as it was, the the over-security reaction, which led to the these two wars, Iraq and the longest war, Afghanistan, the America's longest war. Britain had some longer ones, by the way, for you history buffs. Uh, the British Empire. But um, I remember a couple weeks later, I was flying down to, of all places, the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library in College Station, Texas, because I was on a panel there. We even got to interact a little bit with uh, Bush Sr., uh, who came in uh, and watched a little. But um, I remember in College Station, I mean, the security was very heavy and a little crazy in, in Milwaukee, but in College Station, there were there were security guards with semi-automatic rifles stationed up and down the, the rows. It was just like, oh my God, it's becoming a military state. And so the reaction is as big a story, and that's what we're dealing with still now as the uh, almost 3,000 people that lost their lives in the, in the, in the attack itself. Claire, you were obviously much younger in a different state of, stage of your life, uh, but I am sure this was, you have very strong memories of this. Uh, love to hear those. Yes, I do have very strong memories of these. Um, to highlight the, uh, the there, it is going to highlight the difference in our generations and in our ages. Um, I was in eighth grade. Um, and actually my eighth grade English teacher in whose class I was when we watched on live TV as the second tower was hit and fell is Bonnie Brusky, one Matt Brusky, <laughs> who earlier that year had just given birth to yeah. um, the son, the aforementioned son that Matt mentioned. So um, I think it's a perfect example of the small Sconson phenomenon. Um, yeah, and um, I think I didn't understand. I I felt that I understood the horror what, horror of what was happening. Um, I, I didn't think I understood um, how uh, sort of unique of an attack it was in America um, up to that point, and and you know up until now still, I guess. Um, and I remember thinking, well, stuff like this has to happen in other countries all the time. And we're so lucky that it, it doesn't happen more often here and going home and talking to my parents, my mom being like, no, it doesn't. This is, this is uniquely bad. Um, 
so uh, yeah, I have, I have a lot of memories um, of that day, um, including that it had also been my grandmother's birthday and I didn't know how to like navigate those things in my mind. Um, yeah, um, kind of a formative moment of my childhood. Well, Robert, you in your uh, first comments started to put it in broader perspective. And certainly um, I think one of the things that you brought up and is definitely a part of the conversation is how we responded, right. As a country uh, to that moment, uh, how it got us into this 20 year war, but even broader things, you talked about the security state, um, the Patriot act. There's a number of things uh, that we're living that legacy today. Just wanted you to start that conversation. And then Claire, I know you mentioned earlier that, you had you have some broader perspective just from a numbers data standpoint. I, I want you to talk about after the break if or uh, if we get a chance right before Robert. Uh, continue on sort of your broader, you know, broader perspective analysis. Well, there's a human tendency to overweight something that's spectacular and shocking. Uh, like, and we see it with, you know, a public, a pub, you know, any kind of public shooting versus the everyday shootings that happen, right? And this was shocking because it, it kind of, the terror of it was something common in everyday life, like going to an office building to work, uh, the Twin Towers or being on an airplane was suddenly, suddenly you were part of, if you were on the plane, a missile and you had uh, commonplace instruments, planes turned in the missiles taking down two iconic buildings and, but, and almost 3000 people died. It's shocking. It was a horrible, evil attack. The same time it wasn't Pearl Harbor and it's a little under 3000 lives, plus all the the repercussions, healthy repercussions to the first responders, which shouldn't be forgotten compared to say COVID, which is 650,000 just in the United States or the number of highway deaths every year. And that's not to diminish 9-11, it's saying, 9 it's saying our ability to be drawn to that kind of thing makes us overweight them. And I know we're getting to a break fairly soon, but what happened is the Cold War had ended and we didn't need a giant military industrial complex anymore. And it empowered a group of what they, they're called neocons to have a new villain other than communism and gen up 20 more years of wars and massive military spending. Vietnam came out of the Cold War long after the Cold War should have ended because the Soviet Union was no longer an expansionist power. They're what's called the status quo power in international relations. But we didn't act that way, and Ronald Reagan, the conservatives, didn't. And that has led us to where we are, where, where it's both money and it's blood, our blood and a lot of other people's blood in the Middle East and in Afghanistan, uh, that as a result... But that should not diminish the tragedy. There's a tragedy here, but the way it was abused and misused needs to also be talked about and recognized. That's become part of the of the legacy of of of, of 9/11. And with that, we're going to take our first break here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin, where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're talking about the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, 
and Robert's done a nice job of providing some broader perspective. Claire, um, wanted to go to you. I know you had some data that you wanted to bring to bear that kind of also provides some broader perspective to this 20-year war. Yeah, thank you. Um, so if you are looking for um, good academic, easily consumable and highly credible research that is outside of the government itself on the true cost of war, um, both human and financial, um, a great place to go and look is the Cost of War Project from Brown University. And this is, like I said, um, an exceptionally credible um, academic project. And um, so credible, in fact, that President Biden has started citing some of their numbers about the true cost of war and his remarks about the end of uh, the war in Afghanistan over numbers provided by the Department of Defense. Now, granted, he has a a political incentive to make the war seem as costly as possible um, in his announcement of ending it, um, but it make it doesn't make that an, uh, the numbers he's citing any less true. Uh, so I want to I want to point us to some of these to help frame up this uh, this discussion. Um, so the high level uh, financial numbers here are that um, since the September 11th attacks, the war on terror. Um, efforts through this country, uh, in this country have cost through fiscal year 2022, so through this moment, um, $8 trillion. Um, and this is, actually again, $8 trillion. That's a staggering number, just in perspective, when we're t- talking about $3.5 trillion in this budget proposal that we've spent way more than that on this war. Yeah, um, yes. And I mean, it's hundreds of millions of dollars a day. And that number is uh, at least twice what, if you were to ask a, the Department of Defense, for example, um, and the Department of Homeland Security, what this uh, war has cost, or these, these efforts um, as part of the war on terror um, after September 11th. Um, and that's because as academic project found, there's just a whole host of costs that the government in their, um, in their calculations wasn't including. Um, and some are very basic things like the fact that a lot of this war was funded through credit and credit has interest. And so they weren't counting um, they weren't counting billions of dollars worth of uh, borrowing interest. Um, other things are the obligations that we have for the cost of veterans care for the increase in the number of military, um, professionals that were being sent overseas that are being enrolled in the military uh, because of the the need to keep putting bodies on the ground in these operations all across the world. And so when you factor in all of those things, like you said, you get a, a much greater number than um, just the two to $4 billion in um, sort of direct spending on overseas operations that you might get if you ask the Department of Defense or the State Department. Um, another number that is much greater than people might expect is the number of countries in the world where the, since, um, the, um, attacks on 9-11 that the United States has been operating in the war on terror. Um, I think people might expect that it's, you know, just a, a handful, a dozen of countries that we know about things like places like Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan and Syria. 
Um, but really the, the cost of war project found that between 2018 and 2020, um, there were um, US counterterrorism operations in 85 countries. 85 countries that the US is continuing to operate in. And these, um, these operations consist of things like training and assistance um, of the country's military um, exercises, executing our own military exercises, active combat, and then things like air and drone strikes. And those countries um, are concentrated largely in Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, there's a few things that happen in other countries like uh, Spain and Italy are marked on this map, but the vast majority of these are in um, Africa, like I said, and, and Southeastern Asia. It's, it's widespread. And so I will always remember where I was when 9-11 happened. I will also always remember where I was when I first heard the report that the war effort in Afghanistan was over. I think those will always be burned into my brain. Um, but we can't allow ourselves to think that just because the war in Afghanistan is over, that the war in terror is over because the U.S. will continue to operate in the war on terror. And so we have to stay on top of holding our government accountable for this broader military effort um, that was launched um, basically because of 9-11. Robert? Thank you, Claire, for laying all of that out and understanding. Really, we've just had a second Cold War, but it's not like the original Cold War, entirely cold. <laughs> there are plenty of casualties. And I just think that when we think about whether we're going to have a basic social safety net, whether we're going to have affordable child care, paid family leave, health care people can afford, uh, uh, preventing a climate genocide, which is what it is if we don't rapidly start reducing emissions. We haven't started, folks. Um, that we can't afford, and by the way, the military itself and this whole infrastructure Claire laid out has a huge climate impact, negative one, um, that we just can't afford this and it doesn't make us safer most of it. It really doesn't. But what happens is, look, I admire the professionals who are in the military. I have friends who went into the military, both from graduate school and undergraduate, you know, JAG lawyers and officers in the Marines and the like. I respect the professionalism of it. I respect the fact that they remain professional and non-political when Trump tried to politicize them. Uh, General Milley, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, won this step of goose-stepping behind Trump when he went and cleared a whole crowd to have a, a stupid press conference um, in, in Lafayette Park across the street from the White House, but then he reversed himself. So he clearly heard it from others and rethought it himself. Uh, but it's still folks like this, no matter how well-intended, I don't mean just my friends, I mean the, the JAG lawyers don't recommend this stuff. I'm talking about the generals. They're going to recommend military solutions. And it is not unlike the policing problem. The policing problem is not that there isn't a role for police. Policing problem is it's all we are spending on and we're not doing all of the things to prevent dangerous incidents and to make communities healthy, right? So we're not dealing with substance use prevention or mental health uh, care generally or poverty or good jobs. And we also have first responders who deal with crises in mental health or substance use. We send people with guns. And of course, sometimes those guns are going to get used because that's not even what 
what they're equipped to handle. And so the military is the same way in Afghanistan. The generals, brilliant men, many of them with the best credentials you can imagine, mostly men, um, making an argument that just give us more time, do this surge, and we'll. And it, we, we were in worse position ten years later after the Obama surge. And my biggest concern about the and this is what the right is trying to do, getting all over Biden about the missteps on the withdrawal is taking attention away from the administration that caused both the Iraq war and the Afghan Afghanistan war. That was George Bush and then the neocons. And then really, even though they're friends and Biden worked for President Obama, President Obama didn't have the guts to do what Joseph Biden just did by finally ending a war that is not in any way, as President Biden has pointed out, we are not, we've already achieved our original objective where we're not achieving anything. We're not going to nation build. We're not good yeah. at it. And it's probably impossible under the circumstances. Not only, Claire, did you have a, you wanted to close, right? Yeah, I think we would be remiss if we didn't um, end on talking about what the um, human cost of the war on terror since 9-11 has been. And um, the cost of war project from Brown University estimates that over 929 people have died in the post 9-11 wars due to direct war violence and then several times as many due to the reverberating costs of war. So for example, in Iraq, one of the leading costs of death amongst children right now is diarrhea because a common act of war is to bomb infrastructure, things like sewers. And so we're not even capturing the reverberating cost of, of what people have to live with on the ground after a war quote unquote ends. Um, but again, it's worth noting that this almost 1 million person cost of war due to direct violence, 929,000 people. Again, that number is much higher than what you might hear from an official government source because this project includes um, people who wouldn't be included in some of those numbers like oppositional um, militia members or military combatants, they might be called. Um, because it, And the project makes a specific choice to include those in their death count um, because it could be very easy for military and government officials to hide civi civilian casualties by calling them militants when in fact they, they may not be. So um, I think it's, it's worth holding that um, in our hearts given how many likely civilians um, and in addition to, of course, the tragedy of military um, professionals from the United States and our allies losing their lives. Well, I really appreciate this conversation. Um, it's, uh, we're, it's a historic moment. But with that, we got to take a break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We spent the first two segments talking about the 20-year war on terror that has been a product of the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. It was a fantastic discussion, and I, you know, I think it's um, it's the proper perspective. We don't talk enough about the cost of war. Um, Claire, your numbers were excellent. I mean, just to put that you the you put that in perspective, uh, eight trillion dollars over a twenty year period. Um, that's not too far off from the Thrive Agenda, 
and what a lot of folks think is needed to try and save our planet and get us moving in a direction that can change our economy. So it sort of puts into perspective a little bit sort of the costs if we're going to invest in a war on terror, endless war, or are we going to invest in the kind of future uh, that we need? And that certainly is part of the conversation in the uh, the, the 3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package that's being discussed in Congress that we've been talking about, and I want to transition us to, because the cost of it appears to be some of some of what the problem with the moderates is, and kind of puts it in perspective, uh, just in some ways how silly that conversation is. But want to have that conversation, Robert? I know you have been close in our discussions, uh, both through People's Action and conversations with the Progressive Caucus, uh, but also tracking this. Want to get your initial thoughts, and then Claire, get um, get your follow up on sort of the latest and where we're at um, with the. Uh, congressional packages, both on infrastructure and uh, the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package. So I think taking a little bit of a step back, it's amazing that we're at this point, whether Biden and the Democrats are successful or not. This is New Deal level reform. So it's been, it's been over 60, 70 years, 70 years since we've done anything like this, if it happens, it's being done with the slimmest of majorities, with the broadest possible Democratic Party, because all moderates have been purged from the Republican Party. This is everyone from Joe Manchin to AOC is this party. It would not be one party in a multi-party system like most representative democracies are around the world. And it's on track. You have a president actually pursuing this much. It's not enough to prevent the climate crisis. It's the first major step we've taken. It's the first major step we've taken to actually create the kind of social safety net you need for average people to thrive and prosper in this society. I mean, free, universal uh, uh, pre-kindergarten, um, paid family leave, really the country that doesn't do it, right? Um, Childcare. You can't work in this economy given the affordability of childcare, the affordability of healthcare, uh, the actual beginnings of a giant green conversion we need to save the species. It goes on and on. I mean, I'm missing things. And it's but it's in play. It's going to be hard. Uh, we're getting a huge disservice in media coverage generally because, look, they rely on the same kind of tired Washington sources the wise guys of Washington and K Street who have run this country into the ground. And it's the most stale of conventional wisdom. And you have to understand that. So what's happening right now are a couple things. Uh, the White House, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader and the House Speaker, and progressives, the, the, the very large Congressional Progressive Caucus and the 10 block of 10 progressive U.S. senators are unified and are pushing this through, they're in a very quick process given timelines and you have to do things early administration before an election year to get them done um, to work out now all the details of the 3.5 trillion. And there are divisions developing. There are real choices developing about enhancing Medicare versus enhancing the Affordable Care Act because they're even 3.5 trillion, the need is so great, it's limited. 
subsidized employment versus the Climate Conservation Corps. There's a whole lot of other things going on where there's a real struggle. And then there's the struggle of, do we have the votes? And all official Washington is now in an uproar again because uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who apparently aspires to be prime minister, the decider, who'd written an editorial last week in the Wall Street Journal of all places, not a place Democrats and progressives communicate with each other, uh, to say the least. Um, and now he is apparently saying that his upper limit is $1.5 trillion. And so apparently this is allegedly, according to reports, shocked the White House and shocked Democratic leaders. Well, they're going to have to figure it out. There's a whole lot of kind of cheap punditry going on about either we either we have to do whatever Manchin wants or here's what we need to do to move Manchin. You know, every major reform that ever occurred uh, in, in American history, the, usually if a president was leading it, but if it wasn't, if it was a legislative fight, there was a major opponent that had to be defeated, right? LBJ had to defeat Richard B. Russell, the, the most talented uh, defender of, of Jim Crow segregation. FDR had his big opponents. One of them was his own vice president, John Nance Garner, who was the most influential man among the segregation of Southern Democrats that were half the party and could have blocked everything. And, uh, you know, President Clinton, he didn't get as much done, but he had his great, uh, you know, the anti-hero was Newt Gingrich. And so Biden knows a lot more in the White House and Senator Schumer and others, what will get Manchin to, to yes, but they better do it because otherwise, it's going to harm every Democrat, including Manchin. So even if Manchin doesn't believe they, these things are necessary, uh, every Democrat's in trouble if the president is a failed presidency and he hasn't achieved their uh, domestic agenda. And it's an election disaster if they don't do major things and do them together. Now, the other thing about moderates, it's about money, Matt. I'll just say this. It's about the largest corporate lobbying campaign. It looks like it may be the biggest in history, of course. And this is we haven't built it, done anything big since the giant lobby core was developed in the 70s in response to the environmental and consumer movement. And so these moderates, that's who pays for their campaigns, folks. That's what's going on here. It's not about philosophy. It's not about some magic number. So, Claire, you uh, started the show off telling us about your vacation and how you were thinking about what was going on in Congress. Your thoughts now that you've had two weeks to think about this. Well, I want to be very clear. I did not think about this. I was on vacation. I just acknowledged before leaving that it was a bad time, uh, given how much is going on. Um, but I actually think it worked out all right because, you know, Congress is hammering out what they want to do right now. I think it'd be much worse um, if I had been out, say, the last week of September instead of the last week of August. Um, so Congress has a lot to do this month. Um, they have just a ton on their plate, right? So on top of the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill that the moderates want to move and the budget reconciliation slash build back better agenda that they want to move. Um, they're also dealing with the debt ceiling needing to be raised. They're dealing with the actual literal government budget um, running out on September 30th and needing to pass another continuing resolution so that we don't get a government shutdown. Um, they're dealing with mounting pressure to um, do something about the eviction moratorium, about unemployment benefits expiring, which um, I don't think we've even talked 
about yet, um, and about doing something um, to codify the Roe v. Wade protections in federal law, given everything that happened in Texas, which I know y'all talked about last time. Um, so they have just a ton on their plate, and we should see action um, at the end of this month, um, sort of between the um, the 15th and the rest of the month, which most of Congress coming back, I think, on September, or of the House, at least, coming back on September 20th, I want to say. Um, so we are going to have a flurry of activity at the end of this month um, to look out for. Um, but I agree with Robert that the... Uh, the biggest fight in this budget, I think, is going to come down to the uh, tax stuff, um, because the more money that can be raised, the more things we can buy and pay for in this plan. Um, and specifically, what we need to be keeping the pressure on as progressives is the uh, raising of the corporate tax rate um, and, of course, the prescription drug stuff that I've talked about a lot. So specifically, I want to talk about um, the uh, corporate tax rate piece because I don't think we talk about enough that the Trump um, tax cuts lowered so, so far lowered the um, corporate tax rate that what is being proposed in the Build Back Better legislation um, is several percentage points over where it is now, but still not even where it was before the Trump tax cuts, right? And so we can fully fund and pass the entire corporate tax increase in um, this proposal to fund all of the great things that we care about without even getting back to where we were pre-Trump. And every percentage point that the progressives and the leaders in Congress compromise on and, and remove is millions of dollars that we're giving away um, needlessly, needlessly, because like I said, fully passing it wouldn't even bring us up to where we were before Trump. Um, so those are really important. Uh, and I think we got we to gotta stay focused on the revenue here. Folks, we have to take our break. We're coming up on it. I've got one more question for the panel on this that you know, potentially could be a solution, or maybe it's what might be the thing that gets Manchin to move. But uh, we got to take a break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're also all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. With that, we'll see you right after this break. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about Congress and the big fight over both the infrastructure bill, but more importantly, the $3.5 trillion budget infrastructure package. I actually want to talk about that, that price tag, $3.5 trillion, because Robert, you mentioned early on in your comments that Manchin uh, this week said something more around $1.5. Well, I mean, if we actually look at the taxes that Claire was talking about, isn't it much closer to this really being a $1.75 trillion bill? Isn't that much closer to what Manchin actually says if we talk about what the costs actually are and start to take some things in? Could there be a exit path for Manchin to talk, maybe have the math add up slightly differently or talk about this in a different way? I don't know, because otherwise, I, I, I guess that's my question to the panel. I don't think Manchin actually gives a darn about the number. I mean, the first thing Manchin cares about is positioning himself as powerful and constantly 
making the getting having these press eruptions and everyone is on the media side and and you know on the activist side may be playing into his hands here and that increases his power because he gets another round of national media about his significance uh second thing is he is massively corporate funded and it's not just about the taxes though the taxes are a big part of it so i'm glad claire laid that out it they doesn't want a climate transition. He doesn't understand what's good for West Virginia. Uh, it, you've got to think that moderates like Manchin, that, that they actually don't think the country needs these reforms. And you could just list it. They don't think there needs to be a child tax credit uh, to cut child poverty 50%. They don't think there needs to be affordable child care. They don't think there needs to be free first two years of college, right? Uh, no cost, you know, community college or technical college. They don't think that there should be a vision and dental benefit or Medicare on Medicare or the age go down to 60. That fundamentally, that's why someone like him agrees with the filibuster. The filibuster prevents bold action. The problem is without bold action, and I keep bringing up climate, but it is the threat that transcends all threats. It's not going to matter. But Joe Manson's doing fine. Um, and Joe Manchin is deeply conflicted. And quite frankly, a lot of the Democrats who are, who are resisting this are corrupt because no matter what the right wing Supreme Court says, it is corruption to act on, the, uh, on behalf of giant interests that pay for your campaigns and pay for you being in office. I know they've claimed it's not bribery. It doesn't have any corruption impact. It's a, it's a legal fiction. We all know what it is. Well, look, folks, we're going to continue to track this. Uh, really appreciate the conversation here. We will see if there's any movement. Obviously, the timeline is incredibly compressed, as Claire pointed out. Uh, so we'll be talking about this again next week. But Claire, I'm, I'm coming to you because um, the COVID situation remains very critical. Now, vaccination rates continue to inch, <laughs> inch up. But uh, we hit over a thousand hospitalizations over the weekend. We haven't been there since January, um, and we're hearing about nursing shortages and hospitals. Uh, and you know, your thoughts. Just want to—you've uh, been gone a couple of weeks, but the situation hasn't gotten better. And oh, by the way, all the kids just headed back to school. If they weren't already back last week, they're all back this week. Claire. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the that's the big headline, right? Vaccination rates inch up, but hospitalization rates skyrocket. Um, I mean, that is that's the headline. That's the story, right? Um, it's it's scary. Hospitalizations are uh, back up where they were in January. Um, thankfully, deaths aren't there yet. Um, we were seeing double digit uh, deaths in about that time uh, in January. Thankfully, um, we're still hovering at about 10 or lower a day, which is awful, just absolutely awful. Um, but thankfully, it's not um, three times that, which is sort of what it was um, at the end of 2020 and in early 2021. Um, we should be preparing ourselves though, that we might see those numbers start to climb as well, especially as you say, as students um, are, are heading back into the classroom. And um, 
I, I am nervous to see how that plays out, especially given increasing evidence that co- this Delta strain of COVID is hitting uh, young children harder than the alpha and beta versions did. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of parents as they're sending their kids back to school are, uh, are still hoping that, uh, that the old data is true, that, that COVID didn't seem to hit children um, nearly as badly as, as older folks. Um, and it is just, it's just not. Um, so, you know, parents stay vigilant, stay ready to have your kids in virtual schools and get them vaccinated just as soon as they're eligible. The other piece of this, of course, is uh, college students who need to take responsibility for their own health care because they are technically adults and um, are also back in the classroom. And uh, the UW system, for example, has a commitment to try to hold a sizable portion of their classes in person. Now, the benefit of this is that, you know, you can mask an entire university um, classroom, even a large class, um, and then everybody leaves. They don't take their masks off to do something like indoor lunch um, in a cafeteria or at their desks, the way it would happen in uh, a K through 12 setting. But it's still a lot of people. And um, we have talked before about how college students are not um, vaccinating at the rate that they should be. According to the latest Wisconsin DHS data, um, students, or I call them students, people, adults um, between the ages of 18 and 24 um, are only about 50% vaccinated. Sorry, only 49.6% have received one dose, at least at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. And that is awful. That is terrifying because those students are gathering in mass um, in university towns. So college kids, get your act together. Now- I felt like the old in, grandma wasn't just like now Claire in defense of the UW system they have a number of schools now that are over 70% vaccinated the UW I think is also and uh, at least as far as leadership goes Tommy Thompson is going all over he's pushing the vaccination he's like leading in a way that's positive he's even drawn representative uh, or nasses uh, trying to sue him this week and uh, which just seems absurd. But uh, look, the, the point you raise is absolutely uh, right. We've got kids going back to school. We know the masking levels are going to be virtually non-existent, except in some, in, in some districts. And I'll just say, it wasn't just uh, Graham Mertz that was terrifying uh, this Saturday. It was terrifying in some ways to see all those people together, knowing where, where we're headed, even though it was exciting as a Badger fan, it was also terrifying knowing that we're back together at these levels, unmasked, jumping around. Robert. Yeah, I was terrified by camp Randall and a lot of the other college football, even though I'm a college football fan. Um, look, Tommy Thompson's, Doing great. I mean, the the governor uh, Evers, who really desperately wants bipartisanship, God love him, said that what Tommy is doing is proof bipartisanship is possible. Yeah, with the Republican Party, that doesn't exist anymore, folks. So that's not a great example. Try doing it with Steve Noss. And by the way, Senator Noss, everyone knows he has a Stephen Miller that works for him, the Trump evil genius on immigration, and that is a guy named Mike Mickelson, if you were interested. That is who is cooking this stuff up. And I've debated him a number of times on a radio show, that uh, the Mitch Hank show, which is no longer on in Madison. Mitch has gone to Indiana where he has a show, by the way. 
And so, uh, but Thompson's doing at least part of what's needed. But look, we now know with a CDC funded study that if we don't have masks, that 75% of kids are going to be infected with COVID. They're going to infect their families and it's going to cause uh, severe illness and death. We know that. And most Wisconsin school districts are on mask mandates. Frankly, there should be vaccine mandates. And we act to its credit has come out for that, even though some of their members don't like that, right? Which is great. But we need a lot more of that, including UW. Indiana University and many others have vaccine mandates. And that's what UW should be doing. Um, but I'll give you another example that's beginning to get attention. Uh, rapid testing. It's very available in other European countries. You can get two packs of rapid tests for, for $2.99 in the Netherlands, Matt's favorite, favorite country. <laughs> and then free, of course, in Great Britain with the National Health Service. Here, there was a shortage of it, and it cost 24 bucks for two, and it's hard to find them. Uh, you can find them. It's by Knox from Abbott Labs. Why? Because we are relying entirely on the pharmaceutical industry rather than making it. It could be a state priority. The state of Wisconsin could buy it in the Netherlands and make it available. And what would it do? It's very accurate about whether you're infectious or not. Okay. So people could take it before they went to Summerfest, before they went to Camp Randall and prevent super spreader events if it was cheap and available and plentiful. And there's been a Harvard professor, uh, public health professor, arguing this for a year, and it's still not happening. So there's so much that we could do that the right is not blocking that we as a society, Democrats and Republicans alike, are just failing to do. With that, folks, I cannot fail to end the show because we are at the end. And with that, I want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who makes the show happen every week next week. We're going to be back on our efforts to interview Democratic U.S. Senate candidates. Tom Nelson will join us, the Ottagamie County Executive and candidate Nelson. But with that, we'll see you next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. <laughs>